Hello, and welcome to Faith So Simple, the podcast that explores the Christian faith, transforming the difficult, complex, and downright nerdy into simple, straightforward terms that any average Joe can follow. I'm your host, Joe Staines, and if you're like me, an average Joe, then I invite you to come along as we dive into scripture, history, theology, and many other disciplines to discover the truth of God's Word. Hello and welcome back to Faith So Simple. This is episode two of the podcast and we've got a great lineup for you this week. We've got a brand new nerd word. The first couple of episodes, we're going to be doing the foundations of the Christian faith. So we've got the next one in that series. And uh, and at the end, we've got another question to look at and how we might answer that question. So buckle in and let's uh, let's explore this together. And now it's time for this week's Nerd Word, and I'd like to welcome my wife, Nikki, back to the show. Welcome back, Nikki. Hello, and I'm back again. Are you ready for this week's word? No, but yes, (laughs) I'm going to smash it this week. What are you going to do if if you get it right? Be really smug. (laughs) (laughs) Just, yeah, definitely. All right, this week's word is hermeneutics. Okay, well, I've definitely heard it before. <laughs> I have heard it. I don't know, like numbers or ordering something, like in an order, not like ordering takeout. Like, uh, <laughs> I can see why you think that way, because it kind of sounds like that, but that's not what it is. Okay. Um, Any other guesses? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Just a, just a flat no. I've got nothing. <laughs> so hermeneutics is... Really just the interpretation of something. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce the uh, the Greek word for it. But okay. it, it means literally to explain. And it's a process of, of both interpreting and then explaining it to somebody else. So it, they can understand it. Okay. Um, so it probably has a connection from the Greek god Hermes in Greek mythology. Oh. Uh, who, <laughs> who is the messenger of the gods. So he would he would take what the message was that the gods had, interpret it and explain it to the humans so they would understand it. Uh, it usually takes looking at the author's historic setting, the social background, the religious uh, beliefs, the cultural background, and everything else that's okay. kind of surrounding. So that helps you interpret what they meant with it, what they were looking at it, and then okay. explain it to what it means now. It's kind of a fun word. She's looking at me blankly. <laughs> I'm looking at you in disgust. <laughs> She's never been so Dis- disappointed. Disapproval. <laughs> but what I will say is what we did last week, remember we did exegesis, which was looking at the original words yes, and deriving the meaning. the original meaning. That is part of the process a lot of times of hermeneutics. Okay. It's usually broken down into two steps. One is kind of interpreting the text mm-hmm. and then, or interpreting the language and then understanding the meaning. So it's language and meaning. You can kind of think of it that way. Yeah. So basically that's kind of what it is. And and you've done it before without realizing it. Everybody does Have it. I- everybody's done it without realizing it all the time all All i'm doing is just term harmonizing harmonizing i like that a lot (laughs) we'll do harmonizing but you've done this before probably without even realizing it i'm assuming you studied shakespeare in in england (laughs) all we do as children in england is study shakespeare from birth Uh, yeah i did notice the first time i was here that most people only speak in shakespearean pentameter on the street Pentameter. <laughs> is that next week's word? <laughs> um, but the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, that is the question. That is the question. But to understand what he's saying and to understand... When you look at the entire thing, the mm. soliloquy, that 
what is the to be or not to be that is the question well what is the question to understand that and explain that mm-hmm. would be itself a form of hermeneutics so it doesn't have to be biblical text you do it all the time you can, you can do, do it, it in anything in anything yeah. you do it with pop songs yeah i mean so that's it really okay uh, nice it's not what i thought it was going to be i thought it would be something else yeah so interesting yeah good that's it thanks that yeah, thanks bye goodbye <laughs> Okay, well, in this episode, we're going to continue our series of exploring the foundations of the Christian belief by looking at the nature and the origin of sin. So sin typically is defined as the breaking of a religious or a moral law. But in the context of Christianity, it's fundamentally something against God's design, will, or purpose for our lives. So what does the Bible have to say about sin? Well, it starts actually at the very beginning, back to Genesis. Uh, So in the very first verses of Genesis, we see God creating everything. He creates the heavens and the earth, the day and the night, plants and animals. And then eventually on the sixth day, God creates the first man and the first woman that are known as Adam and Eve. And these are the foundations. These two are the foundations of the entire human race. Well, if you fast forward to chapter 3, where the serpent tempts Eve, in full view of Adam, by the way, uh, she wasn't alone in the garden. The serpent claims that if Eve eats the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, she won't die, but she'll have knowledge, like God, of good and evil. And so, even though she knows she shouldn't, of course she does, and Adam joins in, and they get expelled from the garden. But here is the very first sin, right in chapter 3 in the opening verses. And what a simple sin it is. A general desire to have something more, which led to a small disobedience. But then when God returns to the garden and he questions them, a new sin creeps in now, deceit. And then Adam blames Eve. This is slander. And none of these things exist within God's nature of who he is himself. So the things that don't exist within his nature, by definition, are evil. So Adam and Eve have gone outside of the will of God and have really invented these new forms of evil within the creation that was not intended, and it's the original sin. Well, as we continue in down the story of, of, of the history of mankind, the next recorded incident of sin comes from one of Adam and Eve's children, Cain. In Genesis 4, Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and murders him, and then tries to make out as if he doesn't know what happened. So now we have new sins. We have covetousness, envy, murder. And look how quickly one sinful decision unravels all of, all of creation, all of God's plan. One single sin by one man and one woman uh, has now become generational sin, but it's also generated new types of sin as well. Well, by the time we reach the account of Noah, we find this verse in chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, John Wesley, in his sermon titled Original Sin, describes the verse this way, For God, who saw the whole imagination of the thoughts of his heart to be only evil, his heart being man's heart to be only evil, saw likewise that it was always the same, that it was only evil continually, every year, every day, every hour, every moment. He never deviated into good. Such is the authentic account of the whole race of mankind. That's pretty heavy words, but sin came into the world through one man, and as a result, all men and women have sinned throughout all of history. And in fact, when we are left to our own devices, too often we choose the fleeting comfort of worldly pleasures over God's favor and eternal joy. 
We seem to seek out those things that are temporary and fleeting, uh, but that make us feel good in the instant instead of having a longer term and a longer thought, not only of this life, but we're created to be eternal beings. So for all of eternity and what we do in this life has implications. Well, the Old Testament continues to show examples of how man has fallen and sins against God. And this is one of the central points of scripture and especially the Old Testament that we are all fallen and unable to fix ourselves in order to reclaim the relationship with God that Adam and Eve first enjoyed and then lost. And it is through the nation of Israel that God chose to reveal this truth to the world. Israel was supposed to be the light to all the other nations, the light that that pointed to who God was and, and what his desire was, both for creation and for relationship with people, with the humans that were that were made in his image. Shifting to the New Testament, we can look at sin as well. The continued existence and consequences comes into a tighter focus and a deeper understanding in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul helps here in the book of Romans, which was written during his third missionary journey, around 57 AD, to encourage the churches in Rome. So a lot of times, these church families gathered together in people's homes, and many times secretly due to the fear of persecution at the time. But they were a mix of both the Gentile and and the Jews. And there's significant tension between these two groups, as uh, at the time, many Jewish Christians still saw themselves as God's chosen people. Remember, God chose them to be that light to the nations. And uh, that gave an attitude of... um, significance or maybe greater significance, placing themselves above the Gentiles who were new to, to the family of, uh, of being God's uh, chosen people, God's uh, children, and primarily came from pagan backgrounds. So Paul lays out man's history in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and then I'll skip to uh, verses and go to 28 through 32, to show God's purpose for choosing the Jewish people and the need for unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in order to display God's plan of salvation, not just for the Jews, but for all people. So not just one branch of people, but for all of humanity. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So in this passage, Paul makes the following claims. 
in the opening verses, 18 through 25. First, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The second point, God's divinity and power is revealed, or has been revealed, since the beginning of time in all creation. Point number three, therefore no man, and you can read this everybody, Jews or Gentiles, is without excuse in the knowledge of God. Now, though humans knew God, they did not choose him, but chased after the created things instead to worship. Now, if we pause for a moment and we look at it from a slightly different angle and we think of God as a parent and us as children, and we think about God having uh, provided for us, created this place for us to, to live in and to grow and to flourish, and of course, in order to do so, there are things that we can do, that, that we should do, that he would have us do, and there are things that he would not have us do but we choose to be rebellious and we go after the things that he doesn't want us to do. Well, if we think of it in that perspective and then we put ourselves in the shoes of the parents and we, I mean, if you are a parent and this is very natural that we want our children to grow and to flourish and we set rules around them. And as the children grow and they start to assert their independence and uh, they, they purposefully will push our buttons and, and try to learn uh, where the boundaries are and, and do their own thing. And it's outside of what we would have them do in order to grow safely. Well, that's uh, exactly what has happened here. But in this instance of Paul's example, instead of disciplining the children, though God did discipline the Israelites and the Gentiles uh, and the non-Jews throughout all of the Old Testament and history, in this example that Paul gives us, instead of disciplining people, he turns them over to the lusts of their hearts. He gives them up to do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, however they want to do it. It's fine. He gives them up to the lusts in their hearts. So the Greek word here for lusts, or some translations may say desires instead, is epithumius, which is literally a longing for something forbidden. Uh, there's a book about Romans written by Andrew Allerton called Romans, A Letter That Makes Sense of Life. And in it, he describes this particular word, epithumius, as meaning an over-desire. In other words, this desire becomes a controlling obsession that enslaves you to seek out what you need to fulfill that desire. It's, so it's an overdrive, an over-desire that is just fully consuming you. Uh, another way to think of that would be a strong addiction, a controlling addiction. Well, as a result of this over-desire, Paul explains what happens in verses 28 through 32. I mean, look at this list again. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And this is only a partial list. It's not the full list. And not only do... Does he say that they know these things are wrong, but they celebrate people who do the same? Well, within that list, a lot of those things we saw just in the opening chapters of Genesis itself at the very beginning with the first humans. And so Paul is saying that there is still this problem, this issue among people in the New Testament world. But if we were to continue with Paul's opening verses in Romans, we would see that he goes on and he describes God's judgment and wrath against sin and those who refuse to repent or turn away from sin and return to God. And in this explanation, he reveals that the Jewish people were chosen to be that example, as we discussed earlier. But the way in which God wanted to live with his creation, with us, was in relationship, both to him and to each other. 
And this is displayed through the Old Covenant law, also known as the law of Moses. But in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul goes on to show how even the Jewish people were unable to live up to the expectation of the law and fell under God's judgment just as much as the Gentiles. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. And in verse 11, For God shows no partiality. So Paul's explaining how man fell to evil. God's law and the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses was not enough to overcome man's evil or to redirect man's evil into righteousness. And then in chapter 3, verse 23, comes the well-known statement, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if we think back to the setting of those house churches in Rome and how there is confusion and tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, we can obviously see how Paul is saying that all have sinned both Jew and Gentile, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul is leveling the playing field between these two groups to show that we're all at the same level and that we are all guilty of rejecting God in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our very nature itself. The question can be, is this still relevant? Are people still this way today? Well, if we think about how sin Uh, works its way into casual conversation, into media, into advertisements that we see, we find that sin is still discussed. So in advertisements, a lot of times what we'll see is something that tries to draw your attention and make it desirable. It actually sin becomes something desirable. Think of uh, a, a chocolate. It's so delicious. It's so decadent. It's sinful. It's framed in such a way that the wrongness of it makes it irresistible and worth the cost. Take a look at daily news cycles. And you'll find very quickly examples of people hurting other people, people attacking other people, people slandering other people, trying to tear down someone's name, or maybe just doing that to try to get attention for themselves. And then there's, of course, the uh, the topic of, or the category of sin that we all agree on that, that is evil when it comes to the case of serial killers or ruthless dictators. These types of people we easily characterize as evil. Well, remember the list of sinful behavior in in Romans that we just went through, there's a similar list in Galatians in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, where Paul highlights the works of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, a lot of us who have grown up in churches or have done some Bible verse memorization will think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. But right before that is this list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and so on. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but there are some differences there from the one that was in Romans, uh, but I, that one is might be a bit more relatable to some folks as it's got some other things. Have you ever had a fit of anger? Have you ever been jealous of someone? Have you ever had a rivalry, whether with someone at work or... Uh, your neighbor, perhaps, and maybe you've done some things to try to either cause a little bit of a division or try to get one up on that that person or group, and uh, you can very quickly see how things take root in our hearts and our minds, our behaviors that that don't lead to anything good, and and those behaviors that don't lead to anything good is the fruit of sin, and that is a great example of how evil is not limited to just the Hitlers and the Putins and the serial killers. Evil is undeniably in every one of our hearts, which condemns us as equally as the physical actions 
would have condemned us under the Old Testament law. You see, Jesus tells us in Matthew that not only is it the acts we perform that are sinful, but even the thoughts of the acts of what we intend to do also condemn us under sin. Now, uh, this is kind of a a low point to pause at, and I'm going to pause here today. Uh, So bear with me. If this is your first episode or you're unfamiliar with the Christian message, um, there is hope and there's more to the story, and uh, we will get there. But uh, just as a word of encouragement, if we were to read Paul's famous verse again, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but with the context around it, it reads like this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we will get to that gift and that redemption in future episodes. But interestingly, Christianity is the only faith to make this claim that all men are evil at heart. Islam does not state that mankind is inherently evil, only specific actions, and one's actions in life are judged by the scales of good and evil at the end to determine whether someone is eternally punished or eternally rewarded. A philosophy like humanism will claim that there is an innate goodness in humanity that strives toward the betterment of mankind, almost like a social construct that will always strive for the betterment of our position of how we are as a group. And uh, while evil exists, there is more good than there is evil, and the good wins out. And this is very attractive. It's a very attractive thought initially to think that we could earn salvation and eternity and forgiveness. It's an attractive thought to think that there is a little bit of good in everyone, especially when we see a beautiful work of art or a stunning architecture or we listen to a beautiful piece of music or orchestra and we think about what a wonder and a work man is and what we can do. But if this is, if this is true, either one of these worldviews, then what need do we have of a forgiving God? And what need do we have of forgiveness in general? John Wesley, again in his sermon on original sin, poses the series of questions about whether or not we are sinful at heart. Is man by nature filled with all manner of evil? Is he void of all good? Is he wholly fallen? Is his soul totally corrupted? Or to come back to the text, is every imagination of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually? Allow this, and you are so far a Christian. Deny it and you are but an heathen still. You see, sin is so paramount and critical to the understanding of the Christian worldview, and we'll get to why that is in in upcoming episodes. But it is something that is absolutely critical, and though we don't talk about it as much uh, as some other points of belief, the grace, the cross, the forgiveness, the redemption, we only have those things because of sin. And it can be uncomfortable to talk about, but it's good for us to do so. In fact, the greater that we understand sin and how it affects us, how it affects the world, and how it affects those around us, the greater the comfort and the reassurance we receive from a God who, from the very foundations of creation, ensured there would forever be a way to return to him. (laughs) 
All right, so we've been talking about sin, which is a very difficult topic to explore, and it can be it can be tricky for people to uh, to grasp or to wrestle with, especially if it's not something that uh, is either talked about or you grew up with in the home. And a lot of times, it can it can raise a question: If God is so good, why did He create sin? Or another way to say it would be: Why not make us without sin? Well, one way to tackle this is through the lens of love. For love to exist, there must also exist a freedom of choice, the ability to willfully choose one thing over another. And that's why we have the phrase, if you truly love someone, let them go. And if they return to you, then you know it's true love. But to remove the choice is to dictate the outcome, which arguably creates a world of robots living according to programming and nothing else. Uh, You can dive into that a bit deeper, but we're going to take a biblical view of the question this time. And uh, with that, with the first question... Why did God create sin? The quick answer is simply he didn't. Think back to the creation of the first man and woman. Genesis 1.26 states that then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So obviously we're talking about both men and women here. And the word image in the Greek here means a representative figure, almost like a shadow, uh, a shadow of the original. And the interesting thing about that thought, that concept of a shadow, I mean, if you think about shadows, is that they move and behave in the same way that the original object moves and behaves. They have to. There's, There's no other way for a shadow to, one, exist or to move. It's utterly dependent upon the original object. Moving to the next uh, word, likeness, means to resemble in a similar manner. And considering how it shows up in the passage and and where it is, uh, it's probably not referencing a physical likeness, but it's probably referencing more behavior and awareness and understanding, especially when you look at the rest of creation and how man was granted these abilities that the rest of of animals uh, were not granted. So taken together, God made us to be his representatives in the physical created world, dependent upon him, but similar to him in how we are to care for creation, coupled with our ability to understand purpose and morality, which no other created being was given. So we weren't created to be sinful. God didn't create sin, and he didn't create us to be sinful, But sin did rise within us in our own desire to please our physical and emotional feelings. So in essence, not to be God's representative, that's what we were created to be, was God's representative, but instead we ended up replacing God with ourselves in creation. And and that's kind of of where it comes about and and how things are. And you can see it play out in the world. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 to 18. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. While Jesus is instructing how to identify false prophets, the meaning, the concept can be applied here that the tree of humanity is diseased, is diseased by sin, and by its nature will produce diseased fruit. However, It doesn't end there. It's through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that our nature can be changed and made righteous. But that's another study for another time. 
In conclusion here, God did not create sin, nor did he create us to be sinful, yet through our own desires, we brought sin into the world. But just because God did not create sin does not mean that sin should go unpunished, nor would we expect it to be. Consider the attack of September 9th, 2011. This united the Western world in a search for justice against murderous evil. Today, Ukrainians continue to search for justice against violent intrusions to their national integrity. And consider a random mother who lost a child to a drunk driver. She seeks justice in the courtroom. All of these things are results of sin, and the desire for justice against evil is within all of us. And why is that? Because God desires justice against evil, and even though we are imperfect, we are made in his image, so we too desire justice against evil. Well, thankfully, God always knew and prepared the way for us to find our way home again, doing what we couldn't do, surrendering his own sinless son to the wrath and judgment of our own sin, dying on a cross so that we too can be heirs to God's kingdom for eternity. You've been listening to Faith So Simple. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you were blessed by today's discussion and learned something new that you can share with someone else. All music was written, performed, and recorded by me, your host, Joe Staines. If you have any questions about today's content or any other episode, please reach out to me at faithsosimple at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to get back to you, or I might even include your question in a future episode. And if you have a moment, why not help me out by leaving a review, following the show, sharing it with a friend, or all of the above? Once again, thank you for listening. This is your host, Joe Staines, signing off. God bless, and we'll see you next time.